it's always fun to watch a guy realize his dream, put in the work uh, to get that goal that he's got in mind. And the guy I'm going to let you listen to an interview with is one of those guys. His name's Cole Kublik. If you're a college football fan, especially an SEC football fan, you're going to recognize Cole as being one of the sideline guys for SEC Network and for ESPN. You'll see him on Paul Feinbaum's show, and Cole is just everywhere because he's an offensive lineman who really understands the game and is able to explain it in a way and show us, the viewing public, uh, some great nuance. You can follow him on Twitter. He's great to uh, keep up with during football season, especially while you're watching a game. Cole's going to show you some stuff. But mainly the reason I wanted to let you listen to this is Cole's just a genuinely good guy, a guy who has a goal, and he is showing us all what it looks like to work towards achieving that goal. When he and I sat down a couple of years ago to record this, I went into the studio after he finished his morning show. I just put the recorder uh, down on the console, turned it on, and we started talking. And so it's going to be a very free-flowing uh, conversation. And it's one I think you're going to enjoy. And for all of you folks in the Birmingham, Alabama radio market who are now getting to listen to Cole and uh, his partners on the three-man front on WJOX, I wanted you to get a little bit of a sense of Cole Kublik, the man, uh, to really enjoy his show. So sit back and uh, listen to a great conversation with Cole Kublik. Kind of hit a growth spurt junior year to senior year. I, I got about an, an inch taller and I was about 10, 15 pounds heavier. And it just it kind of couldn't hold up anymore. So I got hurt. I had a pivot shift in our first game, had it scoped, came back in the sixth game, pivot shift again. And doctor said, you're done. You need to, you need to have this thing fixed. And wow. you can't play any more football. Or he's like, well, you're not going to get to where you can have it repaired. Yeah. So I played in two games my senior year of high school, did not play a complete game my senior year of high school. So thankfully Rodney Allison, running backs coach, was recruiting me, really liked me, stuck with me, convinced Terry to stick with me. But Alabama, Tennessee hung on for a while. Uh, Bama bailed out about two days before signing day, Tennessee about five days before signing day, once they got their numbers full. And then thankfully ended up getting a scholarship offer from Auburn. Now you went to Homewood? Yes, sir. I'm not sir, mm -hmm. I'm D. Okay. I'm, I'm way not old enough to be called <laughs> sir. Uh, and, and in much the same vein as Mark Marin, we just kind of start the interview and go. Because sure. I'll do the intros and stuff uh, after the fact. So you grew up in Birmingham, mm -hmm. in Homewood, and uh, – then ended up at Auburn. I did. Like I said, it was a uh, – both of my parents attended South Carolina. My aunt was – my aunt played basketball at Clemson. She was an All-American. She's in their Hall of Fame. Really? She's a really good player. Yeah, she was an alternate <laughs> for the Olympic team. I mean, she was – She was a real deal. She had some knee problems. <clears throat> One reason that uh, her career was cut a little bit short. But – because back then, when you had an ACL, they didn't even repair it. They just, you just braced it and went and kept playing. Dr. Andrews wasn't around back, back then, then, was no, he? No, he was, he was still down in Columbus, Georgia, learning down back then, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I had the opportunity to get down to Auburn. I didn't grow up an Auburn fan. I liked Auburn a lot in the recruiting process. If, if everything would have gone best-case scenario and I had no knee issues and I would have had a great senior year, Auburn would have definitely been in the mix. Would they really? I liked Alabama. Uh, <clears throat> I really liked 
Coach Oliver. And, you know, he was one of the reasons that I liked Alabama a lot. And obviously I played – I didn't play a down of offense in high school. I played only defensive line. And so that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to be. And, of course, when you looked at, you know, Curry and Copeland and Nunley and Shannon Brown and some of the yeah. guys that had been coming through at that time that were right in front of me, you know, I just – I kind of wanted to be the next in line of those guys. And uh, they were they were on me pretty hard, obviously, until the injuries. And then Tennessee – you know, Tennessee, I tell people all the time, they were just – Tennessee was really on the front end of the facility boom. Okay. And you went to Knoxville, which first off, when you go to a game in Knoxville, there's there's not much like that. It's about as unique as it gets. Yeah. Just with the coming in on the Tennessee River and the Vol Navy and the stadium kind of being sunk down and little hills. Well, they had the big uh, four-suite dorms where you had the big living room you shared yeah. within four rooms in it. Uh, I mean, Auburn had these little dorms about probably smaller than this studio, and you had bunk beds. But Tennessee, you had your own room. And you had a big common living room mm-hmm. and big TVs in there. And I mean, it was it was nice. Their weight room, you know, this is they, on the front end of all these schools doing it now. But they had the huge weight room. Mm-hmm. They had the fifty yard indoor facility, which is a hundred now. But this is nobody had an indoor facility, and the, Tennessee was just way ahead. So you went up there mm. on a visit. And unless you just hated Tennessee, you had to be impressed when you went up there. And was this Fulmer? It was. Yeah, John Chavis actually recruited me to Tennessee. Yeah. And then you go to a game there. I went to the Tennessee-Georgia game, the first game of the year, or first conference game of the year. And, you know, Tennessee came back. That was Leonard Little and Manning and those guys. And mm-hmm. Robert Edwards for Georgia. It was a great game. And Tennessee wins at the last second. And, I mean, that place was It was, it was rocking, wasn't it? Was it was as loud as I've ever heard it. And so – you know, you go up there, and it's it's hard not to be impressed. So I liked Florida a lot. Um, you know, I liked Ole Miss a little bit, but it was it was probably going to be Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, really, uh, with maybe Florida having a chance, just because I liked watching Kevin Carter and Ellis Johnson. Those kids played D line for Georgia. I mean, they were that was a fun group to watch too. So, well, how did you grow up in Homewood and not have an affinity for either school? That's I'm, almost impossible. Yeah, Cole. it's you know, I guess when you're not when you're when you don't have the influence from anybody in your family, you know, you kind of grow up and it's it's not that big a deal to you personally. Yeah. But then you go to school and you're around these friends of yours and they're super crazy one way or the other and you're like, I don't want to be like that guy. <laughs> and then you see a super crazy <laughs> Auburn fan, you say, I don't want to be like that guy. So I just kind of stayed neutral. You know, I went through a phase where I really liked Notre Dame because I grew up Catholic and then. I went through a you know my rebellious stage early in high school. Where I was a big Miami fan, and you know I liked the U. And, and that was in know, the heyday of the U. You know, it was, yeah. That my freshman sophomore year, it was '92 when Bama beat them in the, the Sugar Bowl. But uh, yeah, I was. I've always kind of been. I've, I've never. My only true team that I've had growing up has been the Steelers. My dad's family all grew up in Pittsburgh, so I've been a Steelers fan as long as I can remember, and my whole family is. So I yeah. kind of got that from my family. But as far as you know, college football goes. My my dad was always attempting to be a South Carolina fan. And keep in mind, when I was growing up, South Carolina football was was pretty rough for a while. Was I mean, Holmes they had a, there at that time? No, that was, this is before. This is okay. Brad Scott and before him. Oh, yeah. So this is, you know, they had a, a couple of decent years with Tannehill in there, but it was never really a threat to be uh, a college power. Yeah. And to do what they've done the last 10 years, so, or eight years. But, you know, it was, it was, I've been to, I've probably still to this day been to more Carolina Clemson games than I have Iron Bowls. 
So you almost grew up more an NFL guy than necessarily a college guy. Uh, probably, probably. I was a big NFL fan growing up. I, I again, I, I grew up wanting to be a quarterback because my dad and I, our favorite thing to do was go throw football. Yeah. And I used to always, I used to always uh, kid around, but it's, it's true. Like, I mean, I had, I could throw the ball farther than some of our quarterbacks in college. Really. And so our offensive line would play touch football, and they, I'd always be quarterback, and I was always quarterback in backyard ball when we were growing up so that was calling always my thing and then you know obviously I grew out of it, it but you got the build for a quarterback I mean well, now I do but I was you, 280 back. in high school and 305 in college so yeah I mean I guess with I could have done it at Kentucky maybe but but uh been Jared Lorenz exactly before there was you know I tried to do it in seventh grade I said I want, I want to play quarterback and they gave me two days and they said we need you on the line yeah and I was just like sure they put me on defense and I didn't play any offense then either so well how do you make the the transition because uh I played center in high school and also played defensive end and the skill sets are two totally yeah it was tough they're, to they're different I mean it's it's like daylight and dark I was the guy I was the perfect case for red shirt and people say you know why do guys red shirt why yeah. is red shirting good or bad I was a guy that the red shirt year was made for. Okay. I came in, I was strong enough, I was fast enough. Now, I was coming off an ACL surgery, but I was 100%. I had ACL surgery on Halloween in 1995. So when we rolled in to Auburn in August of 96, I was I could have played. I, yeah. was, I was I was healthy enough, but you give it another year, make sure that everything's okay. But then not only to go to offense, but then to go to center. And Coach Trickett knew right away, you're going to be a center. I'm going to make you a center. That's what he wanted me to be. He he saw my lateral quickness playing defense, and yeah. he just knew. I wasn't as – even at 300 or 290, I showed up at, I think, 287. I was never as bulky as the other guys. You're he, what, 6'4"? I'm 6'3 and a half. Yeah. You could just always tell by looking at me, I was never made to be 300 pounds or yeah. even really 280. Your body – my body type's probably more body 250, frame. 260. I've never, I hadn't been 250 since eighth grade, but I would like to be. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not cut out to be 290, 300. And so uh, I think that was one reason he kind of said, you're going to be one of our, our smaller frame guys, so I want to have you at, at center and utilize my quickness as well. And so I spent that first year on scout team and it was rough. Yeah. You know, it, it was rough. Thankfully, Ben Leard was over there with us a lot also, mm -hmm. and he and I got to be really good friends early on, and then we're roommates later in college, so if there's one thing that helped both of us more than anything else is, you know, football's different than basketball or baseball or golf. We, you can't really go out there and do it yourself that much. True. Well, we learned early on, we can go take snaps. Yeah. We can go snap, and I mean, we would go out there in the summer, we'd go out there in the winter, five, six, eight hundred snaps a day. And just we would work on run, step right, run, step left, shotgun, pass, drop backs. And sometimes a receiver would come out there and, you know, he would, he would throw the ball. And then there'd be certain times when, you know, I would just line up at tight end to run some routes for mm -hmm. him. And so I think that really helped us both a lot because we were kind of there together doing – we made the same progression. And having those two guys at that position mm -hmm. progress the same way, it, it helps a lot. Well, I think what people don't understand – is how complicated center is. Sure. Because, uh, and, and just talk about this for a second, when somebody's watching, when they were watching the Iron Bowl or they're watching their favorite, whatever college or pro game, the center comes up and he's pointing at somebody. Mm -hmm. 
Talk about what the center does, what his responsibilities are when he gets to the line, maybe just to help people understand that. And obviously it's, it's, it's going to be a little different for different teams and in, in what schemes and what system they run. But the majority of the time what the center does is identifies the middle of the defense. Okay. And by centering the defense, that will determine who is backside, who is frontside, as far as the strength of where the play is going. So mm -hmm. if we're going to run a zone play to the right and you – call out 50 is the mic, well, you know your responsibility begins, The offense and the other linemen will know our responsibility begins with 50, backside. The tight ends and the running backs will have to worry about the frontside linebacker and the frontside guys. So really what it does is it helps splits responsibility. Mm -hmm. So when that responsibility splits, the running backs will know who is, and it's, it's more designed from an entire offense perspective for pass plays and pass protection than in the run game. In mm -hmm. the run game, all it really does is let everybody know we're definitely taking care of this guy. So okay. the center will take care of this guy. And then the quarterback understands he has to handle with either a running back or a tight end, the mm -hmm. front side guys, or if the tight end's lined up over there, he knows. Mm -hmm. If I call 50 is the mic and 51's the sand linebacker, he's got to take 51. Now, when you start getting into some crazy looks like Jolie Dunn used to run and some four linebacker sets, <laughs> That's Jolie when, Dunn, oh, yeah, that's I heard when, that name in forever. <laughs> not many people have. I tell you, he was a nightmare, though. His, he, he had his had his entire defense on a little piece of paper that was yep. like a, a, a hand notebook or something. And it was almost impossible to prepare for because there was no rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I hadn't thought about that guy in it wasn't, years. It wasn't fundamentally sound at all. It was very discombobulated. You know, you see some of these defenses now where everybody on the defense is standing up and they're going to rush, and they just go different ways. Right. He was doing that back in 94-95. Uh, I mean, he's been oh, doing that gosh. forever. I'd, I'd forgotten about that guy. But, it's, but it is interesting what the center has to do and how complicated it is. And then the ultimate example was uh, in the national championship game with Alabama when, when Barrett and, uh, and A.J. got into sure. it. Sure, sure. And that's one of those deals where, you know, everyone has their different signals for – you know, how and when to snap the ball. You, have, you go underneath, you have a snap count. Mm -hmm. And you can change that up, and you can go on two, or you can go silent count, or you can go on first sound, or you can go on one. It's, there's a lot of different ways, and that's something that I don't think many schools utilize enough. Yeah. It's, it can be a true weapon, and that's one thing that benefited us is Ben and I had been together so long, and we had the same group of guys up front that knew each other enough that we could go up there and change the snap count around a little bit. And guys, the line of scrimmage. guys wouldn't really get a beat on us. Very wow. Much. So if you go up there and you say, you know, red 32, red 32, said hut, and you do that the entire game, mm -hmm. well, by the end of the third quarter, it's not going to be very much fun for your offensive line because those right. guys are going to know when to come off and they're going to have a pretty good beat on you and, and you're going to get beat some. So to be able to change that up is valuable. And then shotgun is a different deal because – Quarterbacks either going to give you a leg, or some of these kids clap now, or some mm -hmm. of them have the guard next to you turn around and look, mm -hmm. which is smart because the center is able to keep his eyes on the defense, and then the guard will tap the center and he snaps the ball. So it's easy to get confused, and if a guy looks back under his legs and the, the quarterback's already raised his leg up, he doesn't know he's ready to snap it. Well, then the, the clock starts running down. Mm -hmm. Quarterbacks get mad saying snap it, snap it, but mm -hmm. he's not raising his leg again. There's a lot of ways it can go wrong. And so – you know, it's probably one of those situations where uh, I can't even remember if it was underneath or in shotgun. He was underneath. He was underneath. The, so they was, kept – A.J. looked like he was audibling. 
Right. And he thought he saw one thing in the defensive coverage. It looked like Barrett thought he saw something else. Yeah, and it wasn't the coverage because the center is they're not going to get an argument about coverage. What's going to happen is, if I had to guess, I would say that they were going to run. They were going to, it was a run play, and you always run it to a certain look. And I tell people all the time, a zone play usually is going to go to the three technique. So when you have two defensive tackles on both guards, the guy that's closest to the center, you're going to run the zone play the other way. Okay. Uh, that's just general principle. Uh, because that block, if the, for the center and guard to try to handle somebody in the A-gap or inside, inside eye of the guard or shade on the center, if it's a shade, it's probably an odd defense and you can go that way. But those are just things that are very – that's a very difficult block in a zone scheme. Mm-hmm. You have – a lot can go wrong there. And so when you run to the three, if a guy scoops inside, you got center help and you want to mm-hmm. reach that three technique to keep widening the play out, and that gives you the cutback lanes. Most likely what happened is – you know, Barrett had identified something, and A.J. wanted to change it, and he said, we're, you know, he'd come up, whatever their call was, you know, we would come up and, uh, you know, if Ben wanted to check, he would go green and check something else. Most likely he started to check, and Barrett knew they had a good look into it. Right. And I'd be willing to bet he told him, no, don't change it. Because a lot of times, you know, Ben and I had the relationship where he would come up and wait for me to make my calls. He would okay. say, Cole, what do you see? And, and I would say, you know, stay with it. Or I would say, you know, opposite, go the other way, something real quick. Right. And then he just knew he could go ahead and get into his cadence. Because a lot of times the cadence determines, you'll just call a zone play. Mm-hmm. So we would come up and just call, you know, 20, 28, which is outside mm-hmm. zone. Mm-hmm. And then inside the cadence, whether he would give you a red call or a blue call, inside the cadence would determine which way you would go. Okay. So you don't have to come up and necessarily change the entire play. It's a, it's a real advantage. This one thing I tell people, Noel Mazzoni was a, a really sharp offensive mind. He got a bad rap because of the whole young Jason Campbell experiment. Yeah. Yeah. But Noel Mazzoni was a great offensive coordinator. And Ben knew how to manage it. I knew how to manage it. They had the advantage of having some older guys. But it's, I would suspect that was a deal where you know they came up to the line and A.J. said, no, we're going back this way. And Barrett probably told him, no, stay with it. We need to run this. Something similar to that, and then you just get into it, you know. Well, and what, doesn't doesn't every quarterback know you never argue with the lineman? No, no. I don't think many quarterbacks know that. Actually, quarterbacks always think they're right. So, uh, but I mean, you know, you're just like I remember watching that, going, "Don't that, you know, they've been protecting you all night." And, and you can't, I tell you, as a quarterback, you can't show up those guys either. No. And you start getting in their face and you start making them look bad. And even a guy who's as poised and calm and has his act together as much as a Barrett Jones, you start to pull those shenanigans and you're, the guy's going to get mad. And I would have probably done more than Barrett Jones did back in my day. But Ben knew good and well, especially on a breakdown, if you had a guy where you missed a blitz mm-hmm. or you called the protection the wrong way or you went the wrong way on a run play, you just don't need guys don't need to be called out in that situation yeah you know good and well there's a we did a deal for sec network where we we did that flashback for the 97 sec championship game us against tennessee mm-hmm. and if damian craig you know he starts smacking demarcus curry on the ass and demarcus curry had jumped off sides like three out of four plays yeah and damian got mad and I can remember being on – I was a redshirt freshman, and I remember being over there. Boy, I would have grabbed him by his throat if he would have pulled that on me. And, and you know, it's yeah. just one of those situations where you, I say that, but who knows if I was in the game if I would have done that. 
because we can, you know, that's what people say about our offensive line coach, Rick Trickett. They're like, you know, why'd you let him get away with that? Why'd you let him punch you? And why'd you let him, you know, grab your face mask? And it's like, it's easy to say now at, you know, or when I was 30 or when I was 32 or 36 now that I say, well, I'd have done this or I'd have done that. You were 19, When you're 19, 20, 18, and your mental perception is this guy has my future in the palm of his hand. Yeah. He can put me on the bench and I can go away. And this be, is my scholarship. Right. I can be a – and not so much lose a scholarship, but he can put me on the bench and I can become a complete afterthought. Mm-hmm. Because no one's going to go to him and say, why aren't you playing this guy? Why aren't you playing that guy? Mm-hmm. If I'm not getting reps, nobody knows what I'm capable of. You're just gone. You just disappear. Were you, at that point, thinking about playing in the league? Was that on oh, your radar? Oh, of course. Radar? I would have loved to. I wanted to. I, I was really beat up. And – um, I had two foot surgeries. I had a screw inserted. I had a Jones fracture. Screw put in. Played a year. Bent the screw in December. Throwing football with some kids. Uh, the next year, had to have that cold. screw taken out. Had another screw put in. And I'll never forget that second time because the Jones fracture screw is a very that's a regular deal. They it's a very common procedure. They do okay. it a lot. And I can remember going down after I bent the screw and I reopened the fracture line. And we go to Hell South and we're sitting in there and. I knew Dr. Andrews. He had operated on me before. He comes in, and I'm already on on the pre-op bed. They're getting ready to take me back, and I think they had already given me something to relax me a little bit. And he's like, "All right, partner, you know this is what we're gonna do, and we're gonna we're gonna go in there, and we're gonna try to get that screw out, and you know got to get another one in. I'm gonna take a bone graft off your ankle, and we'll put that on there to help it help the fracture site, and blah blah. And of course, I didn't know then. I've been in medical sales, so now I know exactly what he was talking about. But then I'm just <laughs> He's speaking Spanish at that point. But I'll never forget, he said, the tough part is going to be, and I got my mom and dad there. He said, the tough part is going to be that screw is bent. So when I torque that screw to pull it out, the bone is stronger than the metal. So there's a chance that that screw will break. And if that happens, then we got a problem. And then he stopped. And I said, well, what happens after that? If that were to take place, and dead serious, he said, if that happens, we'll wake you up and talk about it then. And I'm just like, oh my I looked gosh. at my mom and looked at my dad, and they were both didn't, you know, expressionless. And I just said, put me to sleep. Put me under now. Like, let's get it over with. <laughs> Before I change and I, just, I looked at him and I said, just get it done. I was like, just, just do what you do and get, let's get this over with. So thankfully it went okay. It was a very, very lengthy recovery process because he had never done it. And to hear him say, I've never done it. Really? That's a pretty crazy deal. Yeah, said, because that was right at the height of, of Andrews' ascension. It was, ascension, yeah. That was right? 1999. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, that was going into my senior year. Um, and so I didn't go through spring ball. That's one of the reasons I didn't start early in my senior year. Uh, there were some other deals with that but it was it was scary and it was I think I was in a boot I was non weight bearing for like 13 weeks something just ridiculous and then I was in a boot for like another nine weeks and then I was in a special shoe for like four I mean they really they were really really careful with it and they were like you know you know how to play you this is your senior year you're physically ready you just Mm -hmm. we just need to make sure this thing's healed but then you have to deal with the whole getting back and getting in cleats and actually going through practice again when you haven't done it in literally a calendar year. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. It's hard because we didn't go to a, shape. Right. And we didn't go to a bowl. 
So, you know, I, we stopped playing in November, and then it happened mid-December. So now we're looking at, you know, until I'm really ready, able to go out and run. We did a lot of stuff in the water to try to keep me yeah. in shape and whatnot. But yeah. to really go run, I mean, it was like May or June. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, I got July to get in shape. You know, this is going to be rough. So, yeah. But long story short, I was playing softball with some, some co-ed softball, and Hugh Nall, our offensive line coach, found out about it, and he was upset, and he asked me to apologize, and I said, I don't think I have anything to apologize for, and he said, well, you're hurt, and I said, they got me carrying 50-pound dumbbells up and down Jordan-Hare's steps, you know, running with a 50-pound sled behind me. I was like, obviously, I'm not hurt. You guys just won't let me practice. I was like, nobody told me not to do anything. Yeah. And he said, you should have known better. I said, did you tell me not to? And he said, well, no, but you, got, you should know that. And I said, you know, that's your opinion. I have my opinion. And so we butted heads. So I started two-a-days my senior year, six-string center. And it doesn't take a football expert to know we didn't have six centers on the team. No. So it was Ben Nallen and then a kid named Jeremy Engel, who was a walk-on defensive lineman that had just moved over because I was hurt. I think they moved him over. And then he would just take backup guards and throw them in front of me. Six string center. Trying to make a point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did it? Well, yeah, because I didn't start until the Alabama game. No, but so. I mean, did it make a point to you? Did you oh, ever yeah. go back and apologize? No, but I practiced my ass off. <laughs> I got a lot better, a lot faster, but still, he, you know, he was, he was a hard-headed guy. He had made up his mind. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it as I started the Iron Bowl, the SEC Championship game, Played every snap of the Citrus Bowl, mm -hmm. and my teammates before that Citrus Bowl voted me one of three permanent captains on that team. So, I think that pretty much says it all. Yeah, that that uh, that permanent captain thing. I think people don't understand <clears throat> how significant that is. Sure. I mean, and, it, and I tell you, the thing that it was really, you know, I didn't. There's not a lot of things that I would fight or debate or or get upset about, but. I'll never forget the year after I graduated, you know, they always had the permanent captains in the program from mm -hmm. every year. And mm -hmm. sometimes there's two, sometimes there's five, whatever. And I wasn't on there the next year. And so I called the SID, Kirk Sampson, and I said, hey, man, there's a bit of a mistake here. And he's like, well, this is the name that, uh, that E. Hawley gave us. And E. Hawley was Tuberville's little assistant guy. He ended up getting fi fired a few years later for making some racial statements, whatever. Like football ops guy or just yeah, a personal he, assistant Yeah, but just a miserable human being. Just the most miserable human. And I think he was Tuberville's high school coach, and that was kind of the deal. And Tubbs was taking care of him, and Tubbs was good about that. You know, Tubbs, he let his seniors have a real voice on the team. Tuberville was really good about he would sit down and talk to you, and, and he would give you time. And, and if you had an issue, he would talk to you about it. Perfect example, the whole deal with Coach Nall. Yeah. He said, well, you need to go talk to the head coach because we're going to suspend you for the first game. And I was like, okay. And I walked down to Tuberville's office. I said, hey, apparently I need to talk to you about this softball thing. I'm going to be suspended for a game. And he said, what? I said, no, I just said I'm getting suspended for the first game. He goes, get out of my office. You're not getting suspended. <laughs> He's like, go do something productive. So that's just that's how he was. You know, I can remember walking to uh, the cafeteria with him one day, asking him about Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, when he was yeah. at Miami. And we talked about it for 20 minutes. So, Tubbs was a cool guy, really cool coach. And 
I appreciated how he let the seniors have a voice. Mm -hmm. He wanted it, he wanted it to be their team every year, and um, you know I think he I don't think Tuberville gets enough credit for getting Auburn back. Yeah, because we were in a dark dark place. Yeah. for a while, you know, um, Tuberville Kevin Yoxel deserves a lot of credit for that. He was a strength guy, he right? He was. Yeah, and I I think our first day back because. Again, didn't go to a bowl, so right around Thanksgiving would have been our last game. Right. And then we went home end of November, all of December, first week or two of January. So you're looking at a month and a half that these mm -hmm. kids have been gone. They named Tuberville the head coach while we're all home. So we don't really meet him until January 5th or 6th or something. When you go back for classes. Exactly. And then uh, we had that first workout, boy. With Kevin Yoxel, I think we had 11 people quit the first day. <laughs> and what we got to running wise from that workout till the end of the summer, it was it was times 10 what we did that first day. But guys were just like, but I, th but I think this, you're right about Tubbs. Well, I was living in Tuscaloosa from 04 through uh, uh, 09, kind of right in the heyday mm -hmm. of, of of Tubbs and. So we're around a lot of people with Alabama's program and coaches and that kind of stuff. And I mean, it, it, Tubbs really had it going on. But what I miss about Tubbs sometimes are the one-liners sure. that he had. He had one of the funniest ones last year I have still ever heard. And I'm an Alabama guy. My, my oldest daughter has two degrees, three degrees from there. So, But I still thought it was funny. It was right after uh, it came out that, that Nick was going to stay and had gotten his extension and his raise. And... Um, and somebody asked Tubbs about it, and Tubbs said, "Well, you know, this is what, uh, he was they were asking him about Jimmy Sexton. He said, "Well, this is how good of how good of an agent Sexton is." Saban got beat by Auburn and got a two million dollar a year raise. Yeah, and I thought only Tubbs would see it. Sure, in 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 that perspective, which I love that. But let's so we're you're at Auburn, you're finishing up, and now we're doing this interview in your studio. At 7.30 WUMP, how do, how do we get from there? How do we get from Auburn playing football to being in the media? Because you've been doing radio for a while now, right? Sort of. You know, it's a... In TV? Yeah, and, it's a long road. I, I got out of college, and I was, a, uh, I was an RTVF major, and then they got rid of it. And what's then that? Radio, television, film. Okay. And then they did away with that, and it was one of Louder's deals. And then they, you just had to switch to communications. So I was just a communication. Just general communication. General communication. Okay. But I always knew that this is something I wanted to do. But you talk to people, and when you got out, you, you know, you took these internships or you took these little startup jobs, and you were making twelve, thirteen thousand a year. And I'm, I was tired of being broke. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, I went, I went five years in college and not having any money, and I was like, I, I have. You know, some of the some of the people I've been fortunate enough growing up, my aunt, uh, she's since passed away, but she was very successful in pharmaceutical sales. Mm -hmm. Her husband, uh, my uncle John, that played golf at South Carolina, you know, he's very successful in medical sales. Mm -hmm. My mom's brother was a CFO of about 32 states for Blue Cross Blue Shield for many, many years, very successful. Um, you know, my father has been in sales his whole life. Okay. So... I kind of had some people to look at and say, yeah, I want to go out and be able to make some money for myself. Sure. And medical sales was kind of that really blowing up. Pharma was really blowing up at that time. 
And my aunt kind of helped me construct a resume, told me mm -hmm. how to email it out, told me what to tell people. We had a lot of conversations about it. And there was a company, Santa Fe Synthalabo, down in Birmingham. They were having interviews. They were expanding. They were adding like 900 reps across the country. Oh, my gosh. So I got in at the right time, and I found a guy, uh, Tim Wallace, who gave me an interview. And he's like, the only reason you're getting this interview is because I know who you are. You're an older football player. Right. But he said, you still have to impress us and earn the job. Sat down with him, talked about my work ethic, talked about how I knew enough about the business based on my family, what they had done, how I wanted mm -hmm. to be like them. And they gave me the job, thankfully. And uh, that was about a month after I, after I came home from school. I was living with my mom and I... Uh, I was coaching middle school football at Bumpus High School, or middle school, <laughs> Bumpus Middle School. And uh, so got that job, went and trained in Orlando for a month, and then moved up here. And my mm -hmm. dad lived in Huntsville when I was growing up. My parents, oh. my parents have been divorced since I was three. Okay. And so my dad always lived here, and I lived in Birmingham. It's funny, he moved to Birmingham in 99, and then I moved up here right after college. <laughs> so um, did farmer sales here for about two and a half years, really liked it, but really didn't take long to kind of see the glass ceiling yeah. and you know you were you could kill it and you were going to make a little more than you were making mm -hmm. or you could do really bad and they weren't going to let you dip very low mm -hmm. and I kind of wanted that all right if I really work my ass off and I really blow mm -hmm. it up I want to be able to make you'll it. be rewarded for, exactly. for your effort and so I talked to friends that were in medical sales and they said yeah you need to come sell device you need to come sell hardware and this okay. and that so I got introduced to a guy named Jim Wesson. His daughter was my neighbor across the street at Auburn. Okay. And she introduced me to her dad and he and I just had kind of ongoing conversations. And after about a year of being in, uh, he and I had some serious conversations and he said, well, when something pops up, next opening we get, I'm going to come talk to you about it. So he offered me a job down in Birmingham, did that for about two years. Okay. And it was good, but it was more of an independent contractor type of a thing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, an instrument position with Stryker opened up here. And that was actually working for the company, having my own mm -hmm. territory and having the backing of a company. It was a lot less of throwing me to the wolves and having a lot more support and having a, an established territory with base business. Because in the other one, you're almost a manufacturer's rep. Sure. So this was, it was a no-brainer to take this job. Yeah. So I moved back up here. That was probably, let's see, 2001, 2, 3, 4. Okay. It was probably like 05, early 05, late 04. Okay. I moved back up here, and I did that for six years. And while I was doing that, uh, actually, my first opportunity was the year I moved up here the first time, and the Rocket 95-1 WRTT here in Huntsville carried Auburn football. Yeah. And my dad was friends with the guy who owned the station at the time. <clears throat> and I went to him, and Ben Leard lived in Decatur, selling pharmaceuticals. Oh, okay. And I went to him, and I said, if I can convince <clears throat> Ben to do this, and we sell it, would you let Ben and I do an, a pre-Auburn pregame show? That, it'll be our perspective that comes on before you know, Stan White and Rod Bramlett. Before, before the Auburn right. announcing team. And he said, all right. He said, if you guys can sell it, I'll, I'll give you 30 minutes. And he's like, if you can sell an hour, I'll give you an hour. We just wanted 30 minutes just to do it for fun. Yeah. So we sold it, and he gave it to us. and Sold it. You went out and found the advertisers. Right. We had like four sponsors. It didn't okay. take a whole lot. And was, we sold it for a couple thousand dollars and for the season. And, and then we started doing it. And I think the third show we did, we would go to the Rocket Studios and record it, and mm -hmm. then they would air it. 
The third show we did, I remember vividly. I walked out of that studio and I called my mom on my way home and I said, Mom, that's where I'm supposed to be. I said, I'm supposed to be behind that microphone and I'm supposed to be entertaining people and I'm yeah. supposed to be talking about sports. Yeah. I was like, I said, I, I haven't felt anything like that, I don't think, since I was actually playing football. Wow. And she said, well, then you need to figure out how to do it. And so that turned into Ben moved back to Auburn, and then he kind of negotiated a deal for us to do it down there, but it was going to be for two hours okay. before, before their coverage picked up. And people heard me do that. And then Lance Taylor down in Birmingham on the round table, he kind of heard about me, and he said, well, why don't you start coming on with me once a week? And started going in, sitting with him once a week. And then people heard that. And obviously doing the Auburn pregame show down there, the Auburn Network guys heard me. Mm -hmm. John Cole, the president of the Auburn Network, said, do you want to do color for the spring game on TV for CSS? I was like, hell sure. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> and he said, well, just so you know, he said this is going to be a bit of an audition for the fall. And if they like you, you'll do the broadcast for the Auburn replays. Nice. And so did that. And Andy Bertram and I did replays for the next two years. So I, don't, I think I think 04 was the only year we did every game. Mm -hmm. And then 05, it was like home games. But and you're still doing your medical sales. Still doing all that. Right, yeah. right. Okay. And then 06, I think we did like home non-ESPN games. Mm -hmm. So it was trickling down every year. Mm -hmm. And then it got to be, I think... Well, I can tell you it was five years ago from this year, so it was 09 before the season. It, it was going to be the pay-per-view game. Okay. And Steve Thomas from CSS Sports in Atlanta calls me, and he said, would you be interested in doing the Sun Belt this year? I said, I mean, I don't know. What Tell me, tell me about the package. And he said, well, it's going to be 12 games. And I was like, done. In. And he said, even though with the Auburn thing, I said, 12 versus 1 is easy math. Where I come from, I said, as much as I love Auburn, I'm not trying to be the Auburn guy. You're My, trying to be a, a sports broadcaster. A, uh, right. I want to be a college football analyst. Okay. And he's like, all right, it's yours. 12 games, I'll get back in touch with you. My only regret in that deal is I should have asked him on the front end, since it was only one game, can mm -hmm. I still do the Auburn pay-per-view game? Because I think I upset John Cole and some of those guys at the network by leaving. Yeah. And I've heard some comments that were made about can't believe he would go do Sunbelt instead of Auburn and this and that. And yeah. Again, that's fine. It, some people some people doing Auburn stuff, that's the pinnacle. And that's mm -hmm. where they want to be. And I, I have no problem with that. But like I told you, I, I, my ultimate goal is to be the color commentator on that 230 CBS game. That's that where is, you're headed. That is my pinnacle. And if I get to that, it's not going to be. You want well, to throw Danielson out of the booth? I'm not. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want him to get fired or anything. But that would be my. But not dream with Vern, job. right? I would love to do it with Vern. I think it'd be more fun. <laughs> I think uh, you know that's my that's my dream job. And there would be no after that saying, well, I've got to call the Masters, or well, I've got to call Wimbledon, or well, I want to do. You just want to be a football guy. And I love talking about other sports, but I'm just saying. That two thirty CBS slot, that's my that would be the end all be all. Well let's let's talk about that a little bit because uh it, it, during the recent Iron Bowl, you were a part of a of an an experiment on the sure. SEC network that I thought was fabulous, all but one part of it. I thought the uh letting the callers in ruined 
the flow that you guys had, and especially you and Gre you and McElroy, because I thought, uh, you know, again, I played for a long time, but only at the high school level, but I learned a lot. I mean, I would watch, I was watching the feed, then I'd flip over to you guys sure. after a big play or whatever, and, and you and Greg had a great way of explaining what was actually a pretty complicated process and a complicated play or whatever. You guys <clears throat> broke it down really well <clears throat> again, and I and I learned stuff about about it that I'd never even heard. Right. So I thought that was an interesting experiment. What did you think about it from your perspective? It was by far the most fun I've ever had doing a project in the media. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did a morning show with with Matt Mitchell, Casio kid, who yeah. got famous with Rick and Bubba and then went and did Leno, and now he's on the rocket here doing mornings with Jimbo Wood. He and I had so much fun doing a morning show on another station here in town, and I don't think I'll ever be able to duplicate that on radio. Just We just had that. It was an easy chemistry. Yeah. It was an easy knowledge of each other and a lot of synergy, and it just it was a blast. Every day was fun. Yeah. And... This deal, though, was just, honestly, it was, it was a blast. It was just fun. And I didn't realize how much fun it would be. And a lot of people have said the same thing that you did about, you know, man, if, this, if those callers weren't there, you know, it would have been a totally different deal. But you don't understand what Paul brings to the table until you've worked with him. Okay. And... I understand that some of those people that call in what they say and it's obnoxious or they might be annoying and this and that. But at the end of the day, it really was a perfect storm to be able to say, we're going to give you top notch analytical side of this. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to bring in a diehard fan base to this. Mm -hmm. And we're going to try to mesh those two dynamics with a game that means a lot just in general yeah. at national Championship playoff implications. Oh, absolutely. So to bring all those three things in and then to have two other guys that had played in the league and had analyzed the league and these teams give you more of a neutral aspect on it, you're going to have pretty much everything covered. Well, I thought, I, you, I thought you and Greg were pretty neutral. I didn't sense a no, lot of bias for either side of you. Yeah, Greg, and people have asked me, how do you and Greg get along? Greg and I are, are – if Greg and I spend more time together, we'd be good friends. We've yeah. just only been around each other two or three times. Yeah. Greg's a good dude, really nice guy. Uh, he's obviously super intelligent. Yeah. And the good thing about Greg, the thing that I appreciate about Greg, is the same thing that a lot of people hate me for. You know, we've got this ongoing joke here with my listeners and with Archie Shea, my producer, and other people that know me in the businesses. I have more Auburn people than hate me than Alabama people. <laughs> and, it, you know, I have the Alabama people who hate me on the surface. But there's more Auburn people who hate me under the surface. You're because, not enough of a homer. Exactly. And it's like I told you before, I, I don't want to be the Auburn guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I respect Auburn, and I'm, I will always – I'll always. It's your school. Right. I'll always cherish the fact that I lettered there and I graduated there and I'm a permanent team captain there, and I want to see Auburn win every game they play in every sporting event they play. I want to see Alabama lose every game they play in every yeah. sporting event they play. But it's not going to ruin my day if they don't. Yeah. And if I think Auburn's going to lose, I'll tell you I think they're going to lose. Yeah. Uh, if I think a kid for Auburn's playing bad, I'll tell you I think he's playing bad. But I'll also tell you if I think a kid like Cam Robinson's playing great and impresses me, I'm going to tell you that. Yeah. So Greg, good, Greg is very much the same way. 
Cam's good, isn't he? He's really good. He's the most impressive at that position, at that age, that I've seen probably since Victor Riley or Willie Anderson. That's saying something. Because no, Willie he's, played he's in the league kind for of a guy. long time. No, he's that kind of guy. He yeah. really is. He got a little sloppy late in the year with his fundamentals. And I don't know if his injuries had something to do with that. He got a little bit away from his technique the last few games. But ability-wise and desire-wise and football player intelligence-wise especially, that's one thing that people don't talk about is he has a very bright football mind. The, okay. the things that he sees and adapts to already, yeah. he shouldn't understand yet. And he shouldn't understand um, you know, blitz concepts and stunts right. and games as quickly as he does. You usually need a season or two or three to, to, to feel those things out at the rate that he is. Well, I, I went to the Florida game, and he was impressive then, and then my dad and I went to the SEC championship game. And to see the, the progression and to see oh, yeah. some of the stuff in him, I mean, it was interesting. I want to go back to this SEC thing one more time. Feinbaum has, uh, has made an art form of being hated. Sure. Uh, he is obviously a very, very bright guy. Very. And has, I think, I don't know the guy, but it appears that he's almost built a caricature. This character of Paul Feinbaum, not the guy. Paul Feinbaum. But I'm going to ask you the question that everybody listens to this podcast that's ever listened to Feinbaum wants to know. And since Feinbaum would never answer my phone call, I'm going to ask you, is Phyllis for real? Are those callers real or is he paying these folks to be characters to call in? <laughs> no, they are, from what I know, and I don't know everything, but it, <clears throat> my assumption would be that they are real. And though being behind the scenes a little bit, seeing how some of the things are handled, they are absolutely real. And I've been around a few of them in person, so they are, they're very real. Have you met Phyllis? Uh, have Gosh. I met, I want to say at SEC Media Days two years ago, maybe I did, just in passing. But I'm not going <laughs> to, I have no desire to, to walk up to them and develop a relationship. So. I, I thought it was, it was funny, I met, I met the, the, the Tammy character last year, and uh, Paul tried to introduce her to me, and he's like, you know, Cole Kublick, and she had no idea who I was. And this I just, ultimate Auburn fan yeah, looked, didn't know who you at, were? I looked at Paul, and I said, yeah, she's a diehard. And he just kind of <laughs> laughed. So, All right. Now I want to – But kinda, I'll say this. I'll all right, go ahead. This, I'll say this about Paul also that a lot of people don't understand. And two things. First off, he is a very genuine okay. guy, very genuine man. He's been very helpful to me, very gracious with his time to me. And somebody who I think he respects his position in the media. I think he really wants to help people who want help. Oh, okay. Um, I see what he does with Marcus Spears. I mm-hmm. see how he's helped me a little bit. I think he genuinely respects where he is and how he got there. And it, if you're around him, it doesn't take much to understand that and see that. And he has, uh, he's somebody who I, I definitely look up to. And I have a lot of respect for because he has he didn't have to help me with anything, uh, but he's been he's given me some advice he's given me some opportunity, and he has been somebody who has been very helpful in my career. So if if he ever if he ever decides to write the ultimate book of what he actually knows and what he actually knew oh, sure. behind the scenes, mm-hmm. he. Uh, it would have to be the end of his career because right. he would be disowned by all the sources and, and all of the stuff that, that he's known. Well, but, the, the other thing is, going back to, you know, you, you made an interesting statement about 
has he developed a caricature. Yeah. That's one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand about this business is you can say, hey, this is just, this is good old boy radio and we want it to feel like we're all sitting in a bar watching the ball game together. Yeah. Or, or I'm, I'm, I'm exactly here who I am at home. That's not true for anybody. Okay. It's just not. Okay. We are all entertainers in some form or fashion. Now, that doesn't mean that we're fake, but people meet me in public and they don't recognize my voice and they can't believe that I'm not more animated. Yeah. And yeah, I tell my wife all the time, she's like, you get done with work at 10 a.m. And I said, yeah, but I got to entertain for four hours. It's a different deal. Uh, it's, it's not just clocking in and yeah. looking at a keyboard, you know, or, or, or figuring out some numbers. I said, I, it's, it kind of wears you out. It, it, I, I, can, I can appreciate that from perspective. I've been a public speaker and a preacher and a lot of other things for a long time. And 30 minutes on the platform teaching or if it's just me speaking Absolutely. or whatever, it's just, it's draining. Because uh, you... But how do you do this grind of four hours every day, Cole? Because i got to tell you, man, <laughs> people man. don't understand... That's hard work. Not right now, it's not. Now in... In January, I mean in, uh, in March, before March signing is okay day, with basketball. Uh, how about the dog days of July? It's rough. <laughs> it's rough. You, you got know, it's a lot 20 of, hours a lot of, of airtime. A lot of football preview. A lot of who's gone, who's potentially going to take their place. Uh, you know, and you got to be... That's where... That's when I did the show with, with Cassio. It was so much fun because he and I could spend an hour on... Uh, Nintendo game characters or yeah. you know, what was the best snack cake or you know favorite you know Chinese food I mean we could just ramble and argue about anything and it was hilarious yeah. but you got to be creative you if if you don't have something like Paul has where you have that automatic dependency that's right there able for you to grab whenever you want it as in callers yeah then you got to be creative and you got to come up with lists and you need to come up with segments and you got to come up with different ways to keep people glued in or else they're going to go to something else. So to me, I've never looked at radio as a job. It's fun for me. Yeah. I, I don't, this isn't, this isn't hard for me. It's hard to get up, but once I'm up, I'm up. I, I love to sleep and my wife is. <laughs> and you're doing morning drive radio. Exactly. That's a bad combination, brother. And my wife is the same way actually. And she's due in April and we're both. First kid. First kid. Congratulations. Thank you. And we're both terrified about not getting any sleep. So, but it's, you, you know, you I, I don't, I don't, I rarely show up here and leave here thinking, man, work was hard today. Yeah. It just, it's something that I really do enjoy. And I'm fortunate to be a part of Cumulus now. And I'm fortunate to work with people who are professionals and treat this as professionals mm -hmm. because that makes it a lot easier. Mm hmm to show up and do your best and put everything you have into it and then feel like you accomplished something. Well, and Colin, that's good stuff because that's kind of what New Southern Gentleman is all about is, is trying to help mainly young guys, but just really any guy just figure out how to be successful. And, and I think they underestimate the power of that epiphany that you had that first time when you were doing the Absolutely. Auburn thing to understand that you walked out and you said, this is what I'm going to do. And then, then you got to begin the path. Okay, well now how do I figure out how to do that? But 
how much easier is it to do that once you know that that's what you want to do? Yeah, you still have to know how to connect the dots, and that's the hard part. Yeah. Is even if you know where the dots are, it, it's connecting them and getting from one to the other. And I tell people all the time, I, I take a very strong stance on college football players should not be paid, should okay. not be salaried employees, in my okay. opinion. And the main reason for that is, looking past everything else and everything aside, the main reason that is, and what I argue for, is the platform provided, there is no price tag on that. Yeah. There is no ceiling on that, like when I was a drug rep. There's no glass ceiling on the platform that you are provided as a college football player, especially at one of the major schools. Yeah, I mean, because, again, there's just people who you were going to get in the door. Automatically. Just because Yeah, know, there's, there's a kid that he played for Auburn a few years ago, and he was on the national championship team, and he was a successful guy, one of the fan favorites. And he tweeted something out about, <clears throat> this is right as he was finishing up his career, just drove through the McDonald's drive-thru, and that girl said she makes seven fifty an hour, and I'm working twice as many hours a week as her, and I'm making nothing. And to me, that's depressing to see that. That's mm -hmm. sad to see that. Mm -hmm. It's sad to see that you didn't have the people around you to help you understand how valuable this was going to be later mm -hmm. in life. You didn't understand that now, yeah. now having a coaching position oh, at a major university, that you're making $100,000 a year. And you're not going to have a hundred. That, that girl that was at McDonald's making seven fifty, she's never going to make $100,000 a year coaching football. Now, that that's interesting, Cole. I've not heard anybody... Um, that's on your side of the fence about paying players, talk about it from that perspective. That is, you got to understand what the upside, what the potential that you've been given is. Yep. Not only are you going to have a degree if, if you want to, uh, which is one of my favorite Pat Dye lines from years ago. Somebody asked him how many players of his graduated, and he said everyone that wanted to. You know, and, and when people understand the support system academically that most major sure. universities have, it's, it's almost impossible not to Second graduate. Second to none. It's, it's true. If, you, if everything that you want is there, and so much of collegiate athletics, unfortunately, is clouded by being a professional athlete. Yeah. But what a lot of them don't understand is you'll get a guy like Barrett Trotter. He's a scout for the Rams now. Uh, you'll get a guy like Jimmy Brumball that I played with. He is the defensive line coach at Kentucky. Traverse mm -hmm. Robinson, coach of secondary at Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, these are guys, you don't have to be Gabe Gross and play Major League Baseball for yeah. 10 years. You don't have to be Takeo Spikes and play 17 years in the NFL Man, to be successful. Good. Yeah. And I, I don't think kids understand <laughs> that you can get into medical sales and make two or $300,000 a year. Or you can get a, yeah. You can be a drug rep and probably, I mean, I'm, I'm just being real with you, work 20 hours a week and make 60, 80, 90 grand. Yeah. Uh, you can go be a financial advisor and make whatever you want. You know, you can... You have the capabilities as with a lot of these kids' name, probably to go get a loan and start a business on your own because of who you are, mm -hmm. not because of what your financial history is. And the first thing I did when I graduated college is I went and sat down with Jimmy Rain. Yeah. I went and sat down one with one of the most successful business guys in Alabama. I went and sat down with Jimmy Lee, Buffalo Rocks president yeah. and owner. And I went and sat down uh, we'll just say with the guy that used to own Colonial Bank. Uh huh. And I just asked him, I said, what do I need to do? To and be successful, was that the question? How do I need to get started? What was and their the first, general answer? What do you want to do? Okay. Which none of those guys could get me into what I wanted to do. So my answer was, I want to make money. And what I have found out since then is any sales job, that's the first thing that a manager wants to hear. Yeah. And any manager who's hired me has told me that. Any manager I've worked for has told me that. 
anybody that I've asked about getting another job in sales has told me, just tell them how much money you want to make. Yeah, because there's really we... no other there's no other trait or there, there's no there's no substitute for that in sales. Yeah, because if you want to make money, you'll figure out a way to go make money. Yeah, but now you're not driven by money. Now you're driven by being in the booth at two thirty on CBS. Sure, which I would assume some a decent paycheck comes with that. Well, you would. <laughs> But, but no, it's it's not financial anymore. I, I've chased dollars for a lot of my life, and that's something that's meant a whole lot to me for a long time. And it's hard because I do like nice things, you know. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I first thing I noticed about you was your Billy Reed bag, <laughs> um, you know. And I've tried to I've tried to start a men's clothing store because I thought that could work here. I've I like I wear a Breitling. I like I like to wear Billy Reed. I mm -hmm. like nice jeans. I like nice cars, but. Thankfully, I'm married to a woman now who's kind of leveled me out when it comes to that and is a lot better than I used to be at managing money. Okay. And I'm really good at, at teetering my expectations on things like that in life. Okay. So it's really, I would obviously love to make a lot of money doing this one day, but it's not the end all be all anymore. Yeah. Like when I worked for Stryker, every day was how much can I make today? And yeah. How much is that next check going to be? And how much more can I make next year? Yeah, the problem comes, you end up like a dog chasing his sure. tail. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've been on that track myself years and years and years ago, and it just doesn't... And it got to the point where it was... It, you never get to the finish line. That's sure. the problem with that, is there's not a finish line. Well, it also got to the point where your work ethic wasn't enough. You could work... 80, 90, 100 hours a week. Mm -hmm. And there were always going to be things that you just couldn't control. Mm -hmm. There was always going to be a product that was better than yours. There was always going to be uh, a sales director that just didn't like you or your company mm -hmm. or the rep before you. Mm -hmm. There was always going to be a doctor that maybe had investments in other companies and just wasn't going to use you. Mm -hmm. There was always going to be those other factors, those other outliers that just weren't going to allow you to continue to progress mm -hmm. at that level. And one thing with this is, and I think maybe it's because you know, I'm not looking at it as much from the financial end of things is, I think the more you work, the more you get. And I've really seen that because I've been around some folks in this business that don't work mm -hmm. and that don't prepare and mm -hmm. that don't care about the content. Mm -hmm. And they are the same as they were two years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've been around people who are relentless in this business and they're not doing the same things that they were four, five, six years ago, unless they just want to. So it, to me, not only is this fun, but it's you truly can get out what you put in. There's a direct correlation between what you do versus what comes out. Sure. There's, there's, there's a cause and effect here. And that's good for some people other people that would scare the crap out of them because they don't have much success. They don't have much confidence in themselves. No, and that's that goes back to what it's. I don't even think it's always confidence. I think it's knowledge. And okay. one thing that I always say about you know not paying the the college athletes, <clears throat> the college players is one thing. I've said there's a few things that I would love to see them put in place. One is health insurance for life, and that goes past you know, a guy having a heart attack or having a knee replacement. Mm -hmm. If you need to make regular visits to the chiropractor or if you, if you need to go see physical therapist for a hip issue that after surgery is still giving you problems. Mm -hmm. Kind of like what Philip Lutz and Kirkland was going through. He and I would talk about that. His, his hip, he had surgery and it was supposedly better, but it still bothered him all the time. Yeah. 
if you need to see a massage therapist once a week because of that. Or if you need to see a psychiatrist because you're having mental issues because you might have CTE from getting your head beat in for yeah. four or five years, that should be covered by the, the schools that you paid for. Okay. Also think ongoing education should be something that's covered. Um, I think kids should be able to attend graduate school if they want to. If that's something they're interested in, mm -hmm. it's not much for the school. It's nothing for the school to say, we'll, we'll continue to pay your tuition. We're not going to pay mm -hmm. your room and board, but we'll pay for your school as long as you want to go. Mm -hmm. um, and then when kids come back, it should be the same way. You know, now they have to finagle them away back to be a graduate assistant or get some job. <laughs> some in the, craziness whatever. they come up with. But it, yeah. if a kid that played four or five years at Tennessee – goes off and tries to make the NFL for two years and maybe he makes a roster for six weeks and then he gets released and then he doesn't know what to do and he comes back, he should be able to come back and that tuition should be covered, okay. in my opinion. All right. I also think there should be, and I don't know how you would do it, I don't, know, I don't have every answer, but there needs to be some sort of a, I've actually talked to Jay Jacobs about this and I've talked to Gus Malzahn about it and I've talked to the Auburn Letterman Club about it. And I think it would have to come down to be more school by school than by conference okay. or by NCAA. But I would like to see not even a mentoring program, but just maybe a pipeline of not handouts, mm -hmm. but just sit down with a kid that graduates and he goes to the combine or he, get, he does his pro day and he doesn't get drafted and he doesn't make a roster and then he's... What do I do now? Okay, now what? Because like I told you, I had aunts, uncles, moms, dads that either were doing what I was doing or helped me figure out what I was doing and mm -hmm. then, more importantly, how to get there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of kids don't have that. They need the roadmap. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing. Oh, of course I not. Mean, it's like I told you. Of Until I not. sat in that studio, I didn't really know this is what I want to do. And then another three, four, five years went by of knowing how to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Because when you're that age, you look at radio, like you look at Rick and Bubba or you look at Paul Feinbaum and you're like, man, I... I, there's no way I could ever get there. It, it's, those kind of positions just don't seem attainable. Sure. So, because you just don't know how to get there. Yeah. So I think to have something in place where these kids can come back to their school and sit down with a former player and maybe a member of the board of trustees and maybe a coach or a counselor and say, mm -hmm. all right, let's talk about your skill set. This is what you graduated in. Mm -hmm. What do you enjoy in life? Mm -hmm. What do you think you would enjoy doing in life? We're going to get you connected with this guy who does this, and this guy who does that, and this guy that owns this company. Now, they're not just going to give you a job mm -hmm. making 80000 a year. Um, but they'll you, let you in the door. They're going to talk to you. You know? And if they can't help you, they're going to point you to three other people who can maybe help you. Right. I mean, because you've got these guys on the board of trustees, and, and, and if you just go down the list of the guys who are doing it, whether it's Auburn or, or Alabama, there's a reason they're on the board of trustees. Sure. Because they're rich. They've been successful. There, you know, there's, there's, there's a reason that they're there. And so that's what you want to learn from. And, and, I, and I love the idea that, you, that you're talking about because uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago to try to help start that process, kind of a character development to, yep. to flow into that. And you know, I, would be, I would be willing to bet if there's 85 scholarship kids on a team, at any point in time, 60 of those 85s couldn't sit down and write a resume. Oh, absolutely. And you know the reason why, a lot of the reasons is they, that's never taught in high school. It's there's never no, taught there's anywhere. There's no emphasis. And then what's the one thing you need when you graduate? A resume, a resume. how to do an interview, how to go in and have exactly. a conversation. I mean, that's one of the reasons I do the podcast the way I do it is I'm trying to 
bring back the art of conversation by letting guys see that this could happen and this sure. is this is how good stuff this is how good stuff well and that's another occurs. place where I you know I look back at my mom and my dad and my mom's a teacher and I've always respected her because she was a librarian when I was growing up and she was raising me not a kid she was raising me which I was I was hell on wheels for a while so to be able to raise me and do a good job by herself for the most part and then she went back to graduate school and then went and got her master's degree. Okay. Uh, wow. To be a, she went and got her teaching certificate and then went and got her master's degree. I think had a 4.0 in both. And you did it at UAB and Sanford while she had me. I can remember going to classes with her at UAB. Are you an only child? I have a half brother and half sister. Okay. But we talked a lot. Yeah. Growing up. And whether it was good, bad, indifferent, my mom and I had a lot of conversations. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was because it was just her and I. You there had what, to. Yeah, we didn't have a that's choice. All, that's all either one of you had. Right. And so, and then, you know, my dad is successful. And my dad and I, for the most part, we had a rough patch for two or three years when I was probably hard-headed as could be. What's your dad do? Uh, my dad, he actually is one of the owners of JD's uh, in Tuscaloosa now. Okay. And they just remodeled it and redid it and made yeah. it a package store. and yeah. He's also uh, doing some real estate stuff down in Tuscaloosa as well. But he was in beverage sales for like 17 years. He ran Alabama Crown Distributing up here and then mm -hmm. in Birmingham. And so my dad, he would, I mean, it would make him so damn proud to hear this. His biggest word when we were growing up was networking. And my brother and my sister and I would make fun of him <laughs> and poke fun at him and give him a hard time. <laughs> We thought it was the corniest thing we had ever heard. And, oh, God, networking. Here we go again with the networking. And, oh, yeah, sure, right, networking. Okay, whatever. But going back to what I'm talking about with these kids getting out of school, that's all it is. That's all it is. It's just networking. It's just saying, hey, man, let me show you how to do this and let me put you in front of the people who can actually help you do it. Mm -hmm. And most it, of them just aren't fortunate enough to have that. And it's not a good old boy network. It is networking. There is a, there is a difference. I mean, what... What you're talking about doing is just leveraging every opportunity that you have, and everybody has those. Now, everybody's I, opportunities are different, sure, but you've got to leverage the ones that you have. And I think it's also showing kids that it can really happen, no yeah. matter what it is. If it's TV, if it's uh, being a marine biologist, mm -hmm. if it's being a coach, whatever, all you got to do is go talk to some people, but it has to be the right people, and you have to keep trying because I yes. can tell you, a perfect example, I, I, did the, I didn't have many TV games this year, which was kind of, it was disappointing for me, but CSS went away, and that's kind of the, and it was a little late. But I did the Arkansas Nickel State game for SEC Network, and then I made a few appearances on their SEC Now, and I put some stuff on tape at SEC Media Days for some mm -hmm. shows they did, and then I did the Fine Bomb Film Room. Well, no one at SEC Network knew who I was. And I told my wife, uh, Tom Abraham, who does the afternoon show here, was nice enough to let me co-host with him during SEC Media Days. Mm -hmm. And I told my wife, I, she's like, well, that'll be fun. You'll, you miss radio and you'll have a good time. And I, I remember sitting down vividly. I told her, I said, I'm going down there to talk to the people at SEC Network and I'm coming away with something. Yeah. And she's like, what do you mean you're coming away with something? I said, I will have work somehow, some way. I said, it might be one interview. Yeah. I said, it might be a full season of games. I said, but I'm going to go get something. And I went, and I found everybody I needed to find. And, you know, I found Stephanie Drewley, and I found Steve Ackles, and I found 
Pete Watts, and I found all of them. And mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to go find everybody I need to find who can potentially let me prove myself. And that, I told him, I said, don't give me anything. Just give me a chance to prove to you what mm -hmm. I can do. And the guy that hired me to come do the fine bomb thing was one of the guys that I taped with okay. for one of the SEC Rewind shows. But it, it kind of goes back to, at some point in time, I had to understand the process of finding who the person to talk to was mm -hmm. and then going and talking to that person mm -hmm. and understanding how to talk to that person. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that goes into that. But it would have helped me a lot rather than sitting in the suites at Jordan-Hare saying, we're going to have a job fair today and have a couple different players up there that had different careers try to sit down in front of players and say, well, this is why I do what I do. When I was a sophomore or a freshman in college, which I can't even tell you who the guys were. I can't tell you what they did. <laughs> but if somebody would have done that the day I graduated or the day after I graduated, mm -hmm. that would have been a totally different deal. Mm -hmm. Because now it's real. And now I don't have a scholarship check coming anymore. Yeah. And I'm not going to play any more football. Yeah. So we need to figure something out. And we need to figure it out now. And I think that's so important, too. I, I used to do a chaplain for a, a high school team, and I've spoken to college teams and stuff before. And that's one of the things that I was trying to get the guys to understand is no matter how good of a player you are, one day you, you will get too old, too fat, and too slow to play. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody does. So what it's is always, your plan? It's always going to happen, and that's and most kids don't know what their plan is. Uh, don't know how to make a plan. So I think sure. that, that's what I love about what you're talking about is let's just put a framework. Let's teach them the principles. Absolutely. And then just teach them the art of the hustle. Because what I've heard out of you this whole time we've been talking is it Cole hustles. You know, because I, I, I talk about it all the time when I do some corporate stuff. Hustle is the the great equalizer i agree i mean i've seen some i played with some guys in high school that were phenomenal athletes who wouldn't hustle they had sure. more talent than any of us did mm -hmm. then we had other guys on our team had probably the least amount of talent but man they made up for it and and hustle and you could just i mean it's it's palpable you can see it on there and right. and what's so great about that again is you don't have to have any uh you don't have to have any skill set to hustle. Anybody no. can hustle. That's why I have a major issue with complacency in life. And there's a big difference, in my opinion, between complacency and happiness. You can be happy doing what you're doing mm -hmm. and not really care to advance or do anything else, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But complacency, to me, falls right in line with laziness. Yeah. And it's just, well, I'm here now. It's another now. word for it. Right. I'm here now, so I don't have to, I don't have to do anything else. Yeah. And yeah. to me, I, I struggle with that. You know, I've, I've been a part of some projects in the media with people who really and truly didn't care any more than just to show up. Yeah. And when you're the only one that cares and you're the only one that, that books guests and does prep, man, that wears you down. That well, wears you down fast. It does because you think they're succeeding off of your work. That's the great thing about sure. athletics and the great thing about especially a team sport is if one person, you know, it's a classic cliche if one person doesn't do their job the whole team suffers Absolutely. but it's true it is mm -hmm. you know and so you learn that responsibility but you also learn uh you you develop or at least i did a very short fuse for people like you're talking about who just wanted to ride my coattails i mean i don't, I don't have any patience for right. that because mm -hmm. you know i, I just don't because there's there's no excuse in it well let me let me wrap this up because I, I told you i'd keep it to an hour i've got uh 
One of my questions I'm not even going to ask because you've already answered it. Uh, well, no, I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Uh, who taught you the most about being a man and what did they teach you? Well, I'll make it fair and I'll say outside of my father just because I think that's the obvious answer. And my dad was present and my dad did a good job raising me. And I have a lot of respect for my dad. So I think. Him, what did he teach you the most? What's the number one thing that you were Networking. Uh, That's great. No, I thought that was a great he, answer. He really did. And it's amazing how it took me probably into my 30s really to get it and really understand it. Okay. Because there's a lot of ways that my dad and I are different, but there's a lot of ways that we're the same. And the ways that we're the same are more in line with a mature Cole Kublik mm -hmm. rather than an immature Cole Kublik. And whether it was I just didn't want to hear it or I didn't believe it mm -hmm. or... Uh, I didn't care. Mm -hmm. it, it took a while for me to kind of understand it. And he's taught me a lot about family. He taught me a lot about you know, sacrificing for your family and that family should be first. He's my, my, both my parents. And I was so lucky to grow up, even though my parents were divorced, both, of, both sets of grandparents lived in the same town, lived in okay. Columbia. So, and then I had four sets of aunts and uncles that also lived there. Okay. So, even though we were removed, when we came back, everybody was there. So we've yeah. always had a really close-knit family. We've always had a family that really cares about each other and keeps in touch with each other and wants to help each other. And that, I think I've learned more from that dynamic really than anything else. Okay. Just that with my daughter on the way, and that's one reason my wife and I decided to move to Decatur, because her parents live there. All right. And you know, we can live there and still work where we work. Yeah, it's no big but why deal. why not be five minutes from from extended family and yeah and i mean them, that's a great a gift that's a great gift to give her and them sure all right so here's my last but the question. other would be i just want to get no go ahead here. the other would be bob newton all right who's he he was my high school football coach at homewood he, he was my offensive and defensive line coach my junior year and he was my head coach my senior year and bob newton probably understood me as a person and my personality more than any other person, more than anyone that I'm not related to in wow. my life. And he was right there with me when I went through a lot of hard times with injuries and mm -hmm. some letdowns and keeping in touch with me after football. Mm -hmm. But Bob Newton was also a Little League baseball coach of mine and understood how to manage me when I was a young brat. And when I was a young jerk into when I grew up to being close to a man and then being a man. And one of my happiest moments was seeing him and his wife at my wedding about cool. a year and a half ago. And just, you know, he's a guy that just would never let me not work. Oh, wow. would never let me be satisfied with what I had accomplished. He was never going to let complacency become a part of Cole's vocabulary. Nope. But he also knew very well that I didn't need to be pushed all the time. Mm -hmm. There were certain times when I really needed it, mm -hmm. but there were other times when he needed to get out of my way and he knew that mm -hmm. and he did that. Mm -hmm. And I've never been around another person like that, that just understood that, uh, whether it's been in business, whether it's been in uh, management, sales, sports, coaching, football, whatever. He had a really unique way of understanding when to push and mm -hmm. when to move out of the way. And yeah, I played for some coaches in college that were just constant pushers and constant pokers. 
and they were just agitators. I played for a guy like that. And, and I quit playing for him, went to play for somebody else because right. he got so bad. Right, and I've seen other coaches be that way. And I've seen coaches who don't know how to intervene yeah. and not intervene enough. Bob Newton knew exactly how to manage people. He, he had the balance. Mm -hmm. He figured it out. All right, well, here's the last question. Uh, if I could invent and build a time machine and I could transport you back where you could have a conversation with 18-year-old Cole, what would you oh. tell him? What would your advice be to him? Have that ACL fixed. Have that ACL fixed before your senior year. Okay. I think it would have changed a lot of things. If I could take it back a little bit further, even past the conversation, I think it's funny. I laugh at people who say, I wouldn't change anything. Excuse my language, but I think it's totally bullshit. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Because we would all change something. I mean, I got a DUI a few years ago. I would love to go back, and I haven't had a sip of alcohol since. I'd love to go back to that night and just not drive. Yeah. Uh, or at least I was charged and it was dropped, but still, it's you Google me and it's there. Yeah, you so were all over, man. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> that's the other side of being in the public. Yeah, is. absolutely. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that I would change if I could go back to one, one specific time in my life. I know it was 1992. I know it was August. I don't know the exact day, but we were running sprints in a gym. It was raining for football practice, and we came inside, and practice was over, and we ran suicides in the gym. And I remember Coach Statham, who was our baseball coach, but he was also the freshman football coach. He said, all right, whoever wins this one's done. Doesn't have to run anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to win that one. And I was our fastest lineman by far, so – and I'm, I'll go down and back and then down and back. And towards the end, I lunge forward to kind of be the winner. And that's when I tore my ACL. And I ended up stumbling. And I stopped myself against the wall. And I fractured this wrist in three places. Had an external fixator put on that wrist. But if I could get the, – the worst part about it is talking to some of those coaches and other guys in that gym is they said, dude, you had that one by 20 yards. <laughs> and that's the worst part about it. Oh, if I could have no. just said – just throttle down a little bit. You don't have to be full speed right here. Just ease up. And, uh, yeah, that would have changed a lot of things. But, yeah, that's if I could go back to one moment, that's the moment I would go back to. And that's change. it. But if there's a conversation I could have with him, it would just be, yeah, I think I started, I, I almost started to dive into what I love a little bit late, and I would have just told the younger Cole, once you figure out what it is, not even tell them what it is, but once you figure out what it is that you think you should be doing, mm -hmm. put everything into it. Don't treat it part-time for six or eight years. Just go do it immediately. Because mm -hmm. I, I think I could have made that work. I just didn't know how at the time. Good stuff. Cole, man, thank you for your time, buddy. Thank you. No, Appreciate I it. it. Thanks. That was really good stuff. podcast you just heard was recorded with Anchor. If you want to make your own, download the Android or iOS app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast. That's anchor.fm slash podcast.